0: (laughs) Guys, I can't fucking wait to see that movie.
1: I'm Helen. I'm Miss
0: Sinclair.
2: And I'm Edison. And this week, we are bringing you a very special feature.
0: Oh, yes. yes. We're going to play a fun little game of Mary Fuck, Kill. I cannot wait to watch this movie again. It's just so fucking weird. We're about to hit the dance floor at Jackrabbit Slims because we've got that Saturday Night Fever, baby. I
2: loved this movie, too. Favorite
1: it was so ridiculous. ridiculous.
0: I just pray that Green Book doesn't win
1: Best oh, Picture. Oh, God, I know. That- <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Talk Movie to Me, a weekly podcast where we discuss a movie we've all seen, our weekend in entertainment, and an artist whose career we'd like to put in focus. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair.
2: And I'm Edison. And this week, y'all better make sure you've taken your morning happy pill, because we are staring off into the void of existential dread, filling our cups with regret and sorrow, watching our own bodies decay and fester with maggots, and generally getting lost in the blizzard of our own nihilistic thoughts. Yes, our sweet baby angel listeners, this week's film is I'm Thinking of Ending Things, the latest cheerful romp from writer director Charlie Kaufman.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm Thinking of Ending Things tells a story of a young woman named Lucy or Louisa, uh, played by Jesse Buckley, who sets off on a trip to the countryside to visit the childhood home of her boyfriend Jake, played by Jesse Plemons, and to meet for the first time his parents, Tony Collette and David Thewlis. What follows is a surreal dreamscape of a movie that blurs the lines of reality and plays with our interpretation of time. The one constant is the young woman's continued inner monologue telling us she's thinking of ending things. The film asks a question, is there anything more hopeless than a life unlived? Mm -hmm. At least that's the question that Mm -hmm. I got. (laughs) Before we get into the film, let's just preface this by once again reminding everybody that there will be spoilers aplenty. Yeah. And uh, so if you have not yet seen this film or read the book, then best to just skip ahead to our weekend Entertainment section.
0: So speaking of the book, Helen and I have both read this book. Edison, you haven't. So I have not. So we're actually excited about hearing the perspective of someone who is not familiar with the book. This was my favorite book that I've read this year, by far.
2: I'm so excited to hear what the book was like. And how it, that changed for, for this yeah. adaptation. Like, I'm so excited.
0: Yeah, I would say that it is relatively true to the book, except there's a lot of liberties that are taken in terms of dialogue. And there's also themes that are present in the book that have been really, really amped up in this film Mm. and i can see why charlie kaufman was drawn to this material for sure (sighs) if there's anything about existence and identity and the meaning of life charlie kaufman is like a moth to a flame so (laughs) well
2: honestly like while i was watching this film i had actually forgotten that it was a book because it just feels so charlie kaufman yeah right that i was like wait someone else wrote this i'm so confused
0: yeah yeah so he's definitely made this his own, but right. we'll get into that. But yes, this is based on a book by Ian Reid, who is Canadian, by the way. Yeah. He was born in Ottawa. This guy's only 39 years old and uh, he lives in Kingston. So mm-hmm. go, go Canada. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought you were going to say like, so go to Kingston so and find him. Go to, <laughs> go to Kingston and find him. And we, I, uh... Actually, Helen and I should go and we should find Ian Reid. Yeah. And be like, we loved your book, dude. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Okay, so yeah. So let's get back to the film for a minute. Uh, Helen, what was your first impression?
1: Okay, I was incredibly excited to watch this movie. Very, very excited. Sinclair, you actually mentioned this in one of your most anticipated for this year, Mm -hmm. which I had missed, and I was so jealous that you discovered it and put it Mm -hmm. on your list because I was like, no, I want that one. (laughs) And this was before I read the book. The first few minutes feel very dreamlike and whimsical. The voiceover that we get from Jesse Buckley reminds me a lot of Jim Carrey's voiceover in Eternal Sunshine. So it was it was really bringing me back to Eternal Sunshine, which is my favorite movie of all time.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: What was your yeah. first impression?
0: First impressions for me also, yeah, I was so excited for this film. I had been counting down the days until its release. And... I really was excited to see how Charlie Kaufman adapted this. Right away, I was hanging on every word each character was yeah. saying, and I had an instant dialogue boner. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes.
2: So for me, I knew nothing about this film except that it was Charlie Kaufman. I didn't even watch the trailer or know the actors of cool. it. Y'all, I was like, don't tell me anything about the book. I went in fully blind, yeah. um, but I was excited too because mm-hmm. I knew that you both really enjoyed the books. And so my first impression of the film, I was immediately swept away by the imagery and the mm-hmm. sort of like poetic filming of that opening scene, that juxtaposition of her, like I'm thinking of ending mm-hmm. things monologue set to this really beautiful romantic score mm-hmm. already were like taken on this interesting journey. And those gorgeous visuals of the different textiles, patterns, yeah. textures that kind of weave together to form a fabric of a life. The wallpaper. And, you know, I live for a, a rustic country home.
0: You do.
1: <laughs> oh, I, well, the whole time I was like, Edison's going to die for this wallpaper. <laughs> <Yeah>. like...
0: <laughs>
2: so yeah. I was fully here for this. Yeah. Uh, from this point, for sure.
0: Cool. Okay, so maybe we should get into storytelling. And for this episode, we decided to break down the storytelling discussion into three acts because this movie is layer upon layer. Helen, you always describe Charlie Kaufman's writing as a labyrinth yeah. of sort. Uh-huh. And this is no different. So let's get into the storytelling. We consider the first act of this film, Jake and Lucy, played by Jesse Buckley, actually driving to Jake's parents' home. hmm mm-hmm. I was like giddy watching this movie,
1: to be honest. I loved the first act. It felt very true to the book. And something I really loved is when she's having, when Lucy's having her thoughts and we're hearing them as the audience and Jake cuts in, her thoughts are actually interrupted,
3: mm-hmm.
1: which I thought was such a cool technique because in life, that's what happens, right? You're thinking a thought and then somebody starts to speak to you. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have these cohesive ends of thoughts and then a person outside of our mind starts to speak, right? So there was little things like that that made me feel a little off-kilter, but I was so here for that. Also, some strange angles happening within the car when we're seeing people from different angles inside the car, outside the windshield, that kind of thing. Yeah. Made me feel uneasy and it, I felt it really vibed with how I interpreted that part of
2: the
3: book. hmm
2: So as I'm watching this, it was like a really playful two-hander of yeah. them back and forth. I loved the dialogue. I thought they were both really compelling. Yeah. It felt like a play.
3: Yeah, Mm -hmm. a lot of this could be
2: staged really, really easily as a play. Mm -hmm. What you were saying, Helen, about the thoughts being interrupted—you know, this whole film gives you the sense of kind of being rattled around, stuck in your own thoughts. Yeah, Mm -hmm. like those nights when you just can't fall asleep and you have whatever kind of anxiety, and you're laying in bed and you're just like. Oh, I just need to sleep, but my mind is going in this direction, and then this direction, and then this direction, and then backwards and forwards, and whatever. It kind of felt like that was happening while watching this movie. Mm -hmm. And her thought being interrupted, or maybe heard by his thought. Mm -hmm. Right away, we're given this sense of like, okay, everything's not exactly as it seems. Mm -hmm. I hadn't Mm -hmm. read the book, so I'm like, okay, this is not so clear it's not mm. just like these people existing in this car on their way to the country house mm-hmm.
0: right and we're very in tune to what's going on in her mind and there's a great quote in this scene where you know she says road trips are important because it reminds you that the world is a lot bigger than your own mind mm. yeah so i think in the film this the surface layer of what's going on is a couple that is going to you know they're going to meet jake's parents yeah but the cool thing about this scene is that every single piece of dialogue is an easter egg. Mm-hmm. This
1: whole movie Everything. is an easter it's
0: egg. It's all an easter egg. So there, this is not in any sense a passive movie no. at all. This every shot is intentional. Like, yes. Like, it's, it's saying something. Yes. So at the beginning of the film, you see an old man in a window, mm-hmm. right? He's kind of seen in the window. In mm-hmm. the book, there's somebody that's like watching Lucy all the time. She's see, or, or she's had experiences where she's like seen a man watching her. Mm-hmm. So they actually show this old man right away. She gets in the car and they drive off. And see, this is... The, we're talking... We're going to spoil things because yeah. we're talking about it. So how I viewed the film is I see this old man and I'm seeing Jake... As an old man, watching his own play play out in his mind. Yes. Him and this girl going to meet his parents. Yes. Right? Then in the car, essentially, it is a couple that's not connecting in any way. So you'll notice that he's um, giving references to things, to poems, to, to, you know, to different things that he's read or seen, and she's not getting it. She's going, I'm not really a metaphorical thinking type. hmm And she's a physicist. So you have a couple that's just not connecting and she's not interested in what he's saying and they don't seem to have anything in common. And then suddenly she's changing. She's Mm -hmm. becoming this poet and she's able to recite this like beautiful, profound poem. And he's saying, oh, I think it sounds like you wrote that about me or that's for me. And now they are connecting again. So it's this, this moment of okay, well, now she's becoming this version of a woman that he has created in his mind.
2: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Is that how you interpreted it at that point? Yeah. See, now, at this point for me, because I haven't read the book, I think it's fair to say that you it's be real difficult for you to watch this film and not bring in your idea of... Of course. For, like, you're working from the backwards to the front. Yeah. Because you already know how the book ends. Right. At this point for me, I'm like... Once we see this sort of fever dream storytelling and as Charlie Kaufman, I know that we're in a weirdo web of storytelling mm-hmm. and I'm yeah. kind of not, um, not relying on what I'm seeing to right. give me clues yet, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. I'm not, inter- I wouldn't trust my own interpretation at this point. Right. Like, well,
1: and I don't think that anyone who hasn't read the book would watch this first act and think, oh she's a figment of his imagination and she's conforming to his ideals no I you wouldn't thought wouldn't interpret it that
2: I way I interpreted I saw the old guy the janitor and I was mm-hmm. like oh is that Jake's dad or maybe that's like future uh, Jake I think yeah. that's something that everyone could kind of yeah, you yeah. know signpost but I also thought that it was her story right at this point we're in her mind she's yeah, the protagonist yeah. as far as I'm concerned because it's her voiceover so at this point in the film I'm like okay well what is happening what are these men's relationship to her this right. I did love this scene, though, of them in the car. I thought that there were some really, really incredible shots. I loved how intimate Mm -hmm. the camera would like. It was very dynamic, interesting Mm -hmm. filmmaking, like the shots from outside the window and from right on the steering wheel and close up on the radio. I just thought it was a really brilliant way of visually giving us like 30 minutes of a film. That's just two people in the front seat of a car. Totally.
1: Mm-hmm. And and how engaging it is. Yeah. Like we do come back to having two people in a car towards the end that maybe legs a little bit. But this first act, it's so engaging.
0: And I think you get a sense of Jake's psychological state a lot in this as well. Like I think a lot of people will watch this and they'll think, why does she just start saying that poem? And I think it was a beautiful Beautiful performance in that moment of that. She's got like a single tear running a single tear at one point. (laughs) Yeah, but the poem's essentially about going home, going home, and it's very macabre poem. And he asks her too, like, "What do you think of the scenery?" And she's like, "You know, it's like beautiful in this this bleak, heartbroken kind of way." Mm Right. So we're getting the sense of this person's psychological state as well in the dialogue in the scene. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, there's that line: "Other animals live in the present; humans cannot, so they invented hope."
0: Mm-hmm. Ooh.
2: I thought that was Ooh, really that's chilling.
3: Yeah, <laughs>
0: cheerful. <laughs> so, <laughs> so even if you, I mean, Helen and I kind of know already at this point um, what this movie is about as a whole, but you are getting the sense that there is this cloud hanging over the character of Jake this whole time. You just you, you get could. a sense something's not right. Yeah,
1: yeah. it's off kilter. Oh, for sure. All right, so Act Two. Act Two is where it gets a little buck wild. <laughs> to say I, uh, I would
2: say so. Yes, I mean you throw in Tony Collette giving this balls of the wall absurd oh. performance, yeah, and it's like, uh, yeah.
1: So this is where we get to the house, and Lucy gets to meet Jake's parents, played by Tony Collette and David Thewlis, who are amazing in mm-hmm. this film, and the acting, I think particularly in this act, is so phenomenal from every single person you know, there's moments where the four of them are around that dinner table where kind of what you said earlier, Edison, it does feel like a play.
3: Mm-hmm. Like it,
1: I could see it on screen and everything is so specific. Every moment that everybody is acting is is so grounded and real. And it's confusing as all hell, but you know that the actor knows what the fuck they're doing, mm-hmm. which is really cool to watch, I think.
2: Uh, I thought that that dinner scene was, this is where I started to think, okay, how much of this is actually... Happening. happening. Yes. Mm-hmm. I did in the first act I wasn't there. I was like, okay, right. some things are off kilter, but I still thought it was real. Yeah. Whereas at this point I was like, they're not real people, the parents. Before we mm-hmm. even get into the crazy time shifting thing, the aging bit, mm-hmm. just that like dinner of them being around, the acting was incredible, but they were like unhinged caricatures of mm-hmm. what crazy parents might be like.
1: Right.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I I remember when I was at this point in the book, I texted you, Sinclair, and I said, Are Jake and Lucy the parents? Like, Mm -hmm. are they somehow their parents earlier or something like that? That was the vibe I was getting when I was reading the book. And I did get that a little bit in watching the film, too. Like, I found, and especially throughout the entire film, I felt that uh, Jesse Buckley's character would take on the personas of the people that she was around a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I found that there was moments where I was like, oh, you're starting to act like Tony Collette now. You're starting to act yeah. like Jake's mom. Yeah. Yeah, so there's all this weird shit happening. How did you uh, interpret scene two? I just, two? well,
0: I just need to get the elephant out of the room. Yeah. Because I can't talk about this film without saying what this... Film is and yeah. how I viewed it. Like I, I just can't do it. Yeah, let's let's just rip let's just off say the band. What this Sinclair. is, we're ripping off the band-aid <laughs> This movie and this book are essentially about a man who is deciding whether he's going to kill himself or not. Yeah. So this is a play in his mind that's playing out. Lucy is a girl he met years and years and years ago when he was young, that he met at a bar, and we hear this in the dinner scene. With when his, his parents. She's, when she's when, talking
1: about them having met at the bar.
0: Yeah. That, yeah. but That we, never we, actually happened. Sure. But we yeah. also
2: hear, all, there's also other ways that they met.
0: For sure. In yes. the film. Right. So um, in the book, they actually did meet. She gave him his number and he like never called her. That we found out. In this movie, we don't actually know if maybe she did give the number, maybe she didn't, but it was... Maybe a missed, that's real, maybe it's not. There's, may, yeah. You don't know. But it was a missed opportunity. So this is like his last play that's playing out in his mind while this old janitor, Jake, is deciding whether or not he's going to kill himself. So he's seeing what it would... And this is also representative, not just of suicide, but of the beginning and the death of a relationship mm. as well. Mm-hmm. So... You know, what is it like to start a new relationship and bring them to meet your parents? Mm-hmm. All your secrets are exposed. Right. You know, you've put on this facade of who you want to be. When you bring someone home to meet your parents, they're saying, oh, you know, you were this, and you were this, it's gone. And you see the resentment here in Jesse Plemons' character. Maybe mm. he missed this opportunity with this girl, and he obviously has lived a lonely life, caring for his parents as they aged. Maybe he did bring girls home at one point. right? And they saw who he was, this life on the farm, his parents, and maybe they turned away from him. We don't know, but something to this point has led him to a life of loneliness.
2: Yeah, so none of that is clear yeah. until mm-hmm. until the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even a lot of that isn't clear mm-hmm. by the end of the film. It's not until the end of the film when she like goes in, gets out of the car and goes into the gymnasium and literally disappears that it becomes clear that she's not the protagonist of this story. Right. Mm-hmm. That actually it's the man who is the protagonist of the story. Then... All of the little puzzle pieces Mm -hmm. that you have been considering throughout the whole film Mm -hmm. come together and make sense. And you can form some sort of theory about what it all means, Mm -hmm. right? but at this point while watching the film in the second act with the dinner parents and whatever there's no way on earth that anyone who hasn't read the book would have any idea that it's a suicide film or anything about that right well
0: even when you read the book the book it gets so frustrating because you're going what the fuck is going on and that's what I mean when I said I texted you and said are they the parents like yeah yeah. someone's not who they are but like Who's what? Who is who? I don't and know. And you're just turning pages and you're going, what the fuck? I need to know. I need to know what is going on. And
2: there are several times too where it's like, you know, when she's upstairs in his bedroom and it's mm-hmm. like a picture of her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was also talking to his parents about being a painter. And then she's in the basement and sees these paintings that are from a, a actual real life artist, somebody yeah, else. Yeah. And so it's like, wait, she's not even a painter it's unraveling and it's clear that the idea of her existence is unraveling Mm -hmm. but I was still at this point fully in it being her okay Okay.
0: well let's talk about the basement yes I want to talk about the basement let's (laughs) talk about the basement how did you what did you think the basement was
2: the like deepest part of consciousness of hers I was like she is going in she's gone down that rabbit hole of her own consciousness to try and Unearth what's there. Like, was was this her parents' house? Has she died? Is this the moments before her death, mm-hmm. where she's like flashing back to her life? Maybe she ran away to be this city girl, but like her brother, her awkward brother, her awkward maybe gay brother, because there's mm-hmm. a lot of like little weird gay references as well throughout this.
1: Mm-hmm. I had a, a thought too of like maybe Jake's gay. Actually, I did have that thought watching yeah, it in the because second there were,
2: time. There were like three different points that it was like reference slightly mm-hmm. in in any little way. He was critiquing her judgment or her usage of a particular word or whatever, right. right? So I was like, what is it that's all happening? But I was it's like for me at that point, it was a deep her going into the deeper recesses of her own consciousness. Yes,
0: I think that's exactly how you should view it from with the the, the first time. Um, this because I knew and I knew it was him, I viewed it as the deepest, darkest, of his subconscious. right. So it's that everything you hide away that you don't want that person to know that you bring home or mm. it's all your forgotten dreams. It's the, the paintings are down there mixed in with his janitor uniforms. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's the life he wanted mixed with the life he lives now. Um, and there's the scratches on the door. Like, you know, there's certain things that have maybe tried to get in or out, but I definitely think it's parts of himself that he has locked away maybe yeah hopes and dreams
1: see okay this is where I started to get a little bit disappointed with the film Mm -hmm. because the basement scene in the book is so much darker Mm -hmm. and so much scarier yeah and I didn't find it to be dark or scary like in the book he goes down to the basement and it's sorry she goes down to the basement and it's all of these paintings of like a boy trying to escape a woman right Mm-hmm. And like, demo- they're very demonic.
3: Oh, interesting. And they're very,
1: sc- and like, you feel like you're almost in like a jail, like, like a where someone was trapped down here and forced right. to paint these paintings. Like it feels, it's mm-hmm. very scary. And then she's also overhearing Jake's parents talk about him and say like, he seems a little bit better now. Maybe he's getting better. Like
0: there's this, I feel like it is heavily implied in the book that he's schizophrenic.
1: Yes, I think so. I think he is. And in
0: this, he's just, he's having existential anxiety and existential dread. Well, and but melancholy. in this,
2: it's not even him yet.
1: Yeah. yeah. And it's not, but it's not in the book either. Okay. Um, but one of my big issues with this adaptation is I feel like it didn't lean into the darkness that I loved a lot in the book.
0: Yeah, huh. it's more of a, it's a, it's more of a, a philosophical thriller. Mm. Um, and this one is definitely more of a, existential film that focuses on grief and aging and regrets yeah but also I
2: will say there was a point with the basement scene and in this house in general where I did get a little like get outy. like I was like oh wait a minute is this a weird horror film is that gonna go in this direction does Mm -hmm. she get murdered right like is this what's happening yeah and then there were other little moments in the third act which I will get to soon where I was like it, even it becoming very, even more sure yes. of that.
1: And, and
0: it did feel that way in the book too, reading it. felt mm-hmm. It felt like a horror mm-hmm. book. <laughs> well, in the second act, you start to see Lucy as somebody watching Jake's life unfold mm-hmm. and his relationship with his parents and you're moving through time with them.
2: Like at this point too, it's clear that when we see Jimmy the dog and mm-hmm. then Jimmy the dog's ashes yeah, and then they're aging... It's like, okay, clearly we're leaping through time. Yes. Yeah. And That's we're in a very future <laughs> eventually, yeah. eventually. Yeah. In-
0: She does go on to say, she says, time passes through us, stealing our heart, leaving us chapped and frozen. I felt like I was that wind blowing through Jake's parents, mm-hmm. seeing them as they were, seeing them as they will be, seeing them after they're gone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she was essentially time. Yeah. Yeah. So we do go into Jake's bedroom. The door is labeled Jake's, you know, childhood Childly. bedroom. And when they go when Lucy goes in, she essentially sees all these references that we've been hearing throughout the film. Yeah. We see the poem. We get a sense of all the books that Jake has read, all the movies he's watched, and how he's essentially lived his life through literature and films and basically thoughts that aren't his. Mm-hmm. And so you start to piece things a little bit together more at this point that essentially this is a very, very lonely person who has had an incredible inner world Mm. and has basically consumed so much media that their opinion has become everything that they've digested.
2: Okay, so that's actually so funny because once all of those references of like their previous conversations, Mm -hmm. quotes and whatever were Mm -hmm. happening, and then we get the scene of Tony Collette being like very old and being taken Mm -hmm. care of downstairs right then, That's not. It's not at all how I pieced it together. Okay. (laughs) I thought at this point, oh, okay, maybe Jesse is Tony Collette character Mm. is married to the dad, like David Thewlis is like older Jake, and now she's got dementia. Yeah. And she's like, so her mind is confused and is pulling all these different Ah. pieces together Mm -hmm. because she's struggling with dementia, and he's trying to cope with that. Yeah. And she's like plucking pieces of their life from previous and like reimagining things that she had read as actual conversations that they had had or mm-hmm. whatever. I think
1: that's a great interpretation. Yeah. And the way that Charlie Kaufman and Ian Reid speak about the book and the movie, you can interpret it different ways. Like there is, I feel like, a general understanding, but also it doesn't have to be that. Like yeah. I feel like there's so much. In I think Ian. by the
2: end, it I felt like there was a more clear yeah. thing. Yeah.
1: Can we move into Act 3?
2: Yes, let's do it.
1: Okay. So yes, this is where things really go off the rails. We get Lucy and Jake back in the car trying to leave it's so funny because i read this book in two days i read this book so fast but watching this movie feels really long Mm. Mm -hmm. um and i think that that's interesting because it doesn't it doesn't have the same urgency uh, urgency or um, efficiency that the novel has Mm -hmm. i'm not saying one's right or wrong and i do actually love everything about this movie but i think it was too long towards the end And I have issues with the high school scene, but we can get to that Mm -hmm. in a second.
0: (laughs) Well, this movie, and especially at this point, this goes very, very melancholy, and it really punches up the nihilism. So I don't know how you took that, Edison, because you have zero time for nihilism. (laughs) I can swim in it all day long. Yeah, I mean, generally (laughs) Um, speaking,
2: these types of like bleak, existential dread-stirring stories, uh, not my cup of tea whatsoever. Like, I feel like it's a bit of an affront to my sense of identity when I'm like constantly searching (laughs) for some reassurance that there's some good in this world in the midst of all of this relentless pessimism. Right. But there's a certain way that Charlie Kaufman writes and in this film directs that it did kind of guide me through his mind and his story in like a way where I did really enjoy the journey. And, you know, in this third act, as Mm -hmm. we're calling it, where it goes real loony. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved it. I fucking absolutely loved it. I I did not find this film slow. Mm-hmm. This is where it diverged into like acid trip horror kind totally. of for me, particularly the bit where they're like fully trapped and they pull up to the ice cream shop or whatever the hell it mm-hmm. was. And The Dairy Queen, that's not th- yeah, the Dairy Queen. <laughs> the one girl was like, you don't have to move yeah. forward. You don't have yeah. to move forward. You yeah. can st- that's just out- go that's back. That's outcast the to past. outcast. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, girl be safe I'm like uh, this is like her brain telecasting back to the moment before we always make that that last tragic error Mm -hmm. to like get back in the car in this case I was like he's gonna kill you He is gonna kill you girl and I guess he does in a weird way but by the end of the film but it's not the same as what I thought was gonna happen at that point right
0: and that's interesting because when you don't know you do read that as she's like warning her about Jake Mm -hmm. And then when you do know, you view that moment as an outcast talking to another outcast. You don't need to go this way. I see you. I am like you. Yes. Okay. So then we
1: get to the high school and what happens in the end of the novel is a lot different than the movie.
2: Give me very briefly what happens at the end of the novel.
1: Okay. At the end of the novel, when she gets into the school, the doors are chained behind her and she can't escape.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's
1: it's kind of like she's like she's trapped in the school with the scary janitor that's going to kill her. Basically what happens, there's pages and pages of just like indiscernible thoughts that are written out. What we find out is that the janitor is Jake, is Lucy. It's all in his head. He has written all of this in a notebook that's beside him and he kills himself in a closet with a coat hanger. He like stabs himself in the neck with a coat hanger and, oh, wow. and dies in this closet with with a book beside him that is the story that you just saw basically mm-hmm.
2: right
0: it ends that way but in a different way in the movie right there is also a dance scene <laughs> that's not in the book <laughs> yeah i mean the dance i think was that final it's your last battle chance. it's my last chance yeah. so you see the the dancing couple that he wa- always watches in the hallway mm-hmm. and it's also you know a younger version of him mm-hmm. and, and lucy and meeting each other and the fresh start of a new relationship and you see them get married and and this hits me really deeply but it's about it's about aging it's Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. getting old and seeing your body breaking down Mm -hmm. and and at the end of this dance you're watching old jake battle with younger idealistic jake and poor young Jake loses yeah. he dies and then that's essentially the decision of whether he's gonna do it or not yeah
2: okay so at this point in the film I think I had made up my mind that none of them are real
3: okay mm-hmm. once
2: the dancing happens once Jesse Buckley's character and mm-hmm. Just Bummin's disappear and we have a the new ballet dancers mm-hmm. and the janitor still exists I was like okay got it this is just his dream mm-hmm. his unlived dreams yeah I didn't think that Lucy was real no I, th- I don't think there's anything in the film that gives that indication that there was an actual real relationship so my interpretation was this sad old man just looking back reflecting on a life full of regret yeah mm-hmm. a life unlived and just how incredibly depressing it was all of the potentials the mm-hmm. potentials of academia the mm-hmm. potentials that he had to be a performer to try that life the potential to all of this knowledge that he accumulated from reading or from whatever that he never ever put to use he wanted to be an artist maybe he was gay maybe he wanted to explore Mm -hmm. being gay he never did it who knows there was all of it lucy was like another facet of his personality Mm -hmm. that was his idealized version of what a woman might be but i it made me so frustrated i will say because at this point too i was like well fuck this so she just gets absorbed by the patriarchy. It's once again, <laughs> mm. this protagonist woman's story who suddenly is not. She's just a figment of this man's story's right. imagination.
0: That's true. And yeah. I was like,
2: I was actually a little
3: irritated mm.
0: by I, that. Yeah, that's I fair. So. That's but fair. I, I guess this this could really, I find existential themes can really apply to everybody. Um, I didn't see it that way because this hits, as a woman, it's a man, it's fine. But there's. It's still all existential dread. I still feel... No, I know, but I was
2: just like, oh, but I just spent two hours thinking that it was her story.
0: It was her story, though, for the majority of... It was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And she did an amazing job, Mm -hmm. definitely. But I I do want to point out two very important things at the end that Mm. makes this even sadder. (laughs) Great. (laughs) So, there's two very important references at the end. I know um, what you're going to say. The last speech yeah. that's given is John Nash's yeah. speech at the end of A Beautiful mm-hmm. Mind. Basically, word for word. Um, and Jake is acting this out in his mind. But what's really sad about this is that Nash, John Nash had schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And it's implied that Jake does in the book. And you mm-hmm. can maybe get that sense while you're watching the movie. But Na- John Nash goes on to win a Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he like rises above it. Mm-hmm. And Jake doesn't um no. there's also lonely room from oklahoma which is yeah. basically a mm-hmm. song about a man who kind of just goes for it he he does what he needs to do and he goes out and he gets a girl and jake doesn't, doesn't do and then that. the movie ends with a snowy desolate car yeah and jake has followed that pig into the darkness. <laughs> So, I know, and it's like um, it's
2: incredibly depressing because it's. But also, in a weird way, and here I am. I'm gonna, I'm gonna find that silver lining, <laughs> yeah. honey. You you're can gonna, rest assured. Every
1: cloud has a silver.
2: Well, here's where I'm kind of like, but trying <laughs> Kaufman Are you a deep, deeply nihilistic, pessimistic soul? Yes, but also, are you maybe kind of not? It's a bit like lighting a fire under your ass. Mm. You watch this, and you're like, mm. I don't want to be that dude. Yeah, and. Mm. It's actually really easy not to be. You just have to make the decision to live. Yeah. To go for it.
0: Yeah. And I think that you could take this film. But there's a lesson in that as well. There is a really nihilistic line though where he says he's following the pig and the pig said, mm-hmm. somebody has to be a pig infested with maggots. It might as well be you. It's yeah. the luck of the draw. Yeah. So interpret that as you will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But- I
2: just completely don't believe that. So that's fine.
0: <laughs> to,
1: to your argument though about Charlie Kaufman having... Some hopefulness. I think he does because of how he changed the ending of, of the book. The ending of the book is so much darker and depressing and <laughs> right. gruesome. Right. And that's not what he did. He turned it into a musical and a ballet. Yeah. Like, and well, that, that was his interpretation and how he wanted to portray it. And i I think that does prove that he has some hope. And <laughs> yeah. it goes
2: back to that quote that I said earlier about humans can't live in the present. So they invented hope. So if you believe and subscribe to the idea that humans invented this concept of hope,
3: Mm.
2: then there's something really powerful about that because we've created something that we need to push us forward. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's kind of cool. Yeah. Okay, so we have been talking for 812 years about this film. I have also aged just like... Jake's parents. Um, I'd I'd like to go out and do some of that living of my life that we're (laughs) discussing. So let's wrap this up. We're still
0: talking about this. You
2: get like three more things to say, Max. Helen, go.
1: Okay. I'm just going to say one thing. I'm just going to say one thing that stuck out in my mind that I fucking loved. And particularly when they're at the house, there's... and I'm sure you guys noticed this, but there are certain moments where the camera angle will pan to something and then... Jake will say, let's listen to some music. And the camera angle has just panned to the record player or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I picked up on that as I was watching it, like, oh, he's having the thought. The camera is the thought and yeah. then he says the line, which I thought yeah. was so fucking brilliant. I actually watched a Q&A with the two Jessies and Charlie Kaufman talking about this film and he brings that up. He brings mm-hmm. up the deliberate, like, when you have the thought, you th- you think it before you say it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I love that he was able to depict
0: that in a cinematic way. Like, to me, that's, so brilliant yeah he interrupts lucy every time she has the thought yeah like she, she'll be like i'm thinking to he'll be like what yeah or he'll be like "Ooh, let's stop here or yeah. "Ooh, ice cream so it's almost like him yeah he's like mm-hmm. he's battling with that thought mm-hmm. so yeah. that was the one one technical thing
1: i really wanted to point out i agree yeah, it was great. really
2: spectacular directing choices yeah for sure
1: Sinclair. You, you get to say one or two things.
0: <laughs> okay, one or two things. This is on Netflix. I think this is a really weird film to be on Netflix. I think it's good or bad. I don't think this is a movie that you can just turn on and watch it passively. So no. I think a lot of people are going to see this on Netflix. They're going to watch this with the wrong person. Or they're going to watch <laughs> like, 15 minutes of just it. Watch and watch it like, by yourself. They're like, going to yeah.
2: start it and be like, uh, no. No, yeah.
0: I I think it's like safe to say there's going to be a lot of couples that are going to watch this and one's going to be into it and one's not going to (laughs) be. Helen, this is a good example.
3: Yeah. (laughs) I'm
1: very glad I watched it a second time because I got to experience it
2: much differently.
0: I say watch it by yourself. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. This is a really strong argument for cinema in movie theaters. Right. Where you have to sit and be in it and be fully immersed and not leave in a nice dark shared space. Um, I agree with that. But also it's such a small bizarre film that more people will ha- be exposed to it because of a and streaming also, platform like Netflix. And also, you can't
0: really go to movie theaters everywhere. So we- also a fair point. <laughs> I'm happy this <laughs> Um Okay, last word.
2: The last word for me is that I... Generally, don't go for these types of bleak, bleak, hearted films. No. But I will find a cheery moment and some form of optimism in here if I can. And I actually just really, really enjoyed this film. I enjoyed watching it. I thought that the directing was flawless. I thought the performances were amazing. I loved the score. I just loved it. Mm. Helen?
1: I loved it as well. Um, There were definitely aspects of the novel that I was hoping to see in this adaptation that I didn't. I eat just the really dark shit <laughs> um but i love charlie kaufman i thought the performances in this were beautiful and all in all this is such a like chewy film there's so much to digest and and think about and mull over forever
2: oh yeah good god girl constipation okay
0: we got a couple more bottles of wine <laughs> all right sinclair last word While watching, you may find yourself suddenly recalling your own litany of sentences never said, roads never taken, second chances never offered. Your own personal cast of characters might be waiting for you. You may come to the conclusion that all the confusion wasn't worth the road slash head trip, or you might realize that Kaufman's personal blend of seismic uncertainty, vulnerability, and absurdity is exactly the destination you needed to end up at right now. And in the spirit of the film, I did not write that. Thank you, David (laughs) Fear at Rolling Stone, for summing up my thoughts exactly. Oh my God, that's amazing.
2: Each week, we challenge ourselves to watch films that fit a particular theme. This week's theme is, I don't give a damn about my bad reputation. (laughs) This is our week in entertainment. Helen, want to start us off?
1: Okay. I decided to watch But I'm a Cheerleader. Oh.
2: <laughs> but I'm a Cheerleader. Yeah. yeah. I don't Good know nin- this. Solid 90s movie. Solid
1: 90s movie. Uh, it's from 1999, directed by Jamie Babbitt, starring Natasha Leone and Clea Duvall, with supporting performances by Michelle Williams, Melanie Linsky, and RuPaul.
2: How mm. long? What, or what?
1: I feel like, I actually can't believe you haven't no,
0: seen this. this is gay canon. I,
2: I have so never, gay. ever even heard of this. Oh my God, am I even, am I, guys, am I straight?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I was yeah. in 1999,
2: I thought, <laughs> so, but wow.
1: So Natasha Leone plays a high school cheerleader named Megan, whose friends and family suspect she's a gasp lesbian, and send her to a conversion camp called True Directions. Wow. This movie is very obviously making fun of conversion camps and homophobic people's ideas of the queer community. Uh, For example, the reason Megan's family and friends suspect she's a lesbian is because she's a vegetarian, has a Melissa Etheridge poster in her room, and has magazine cutouts of women posted up in her locker instead of men.
2: Okay. So, but obviously she's a lesbian. (laughs) You're (laughs) right. Does she put hemp oil on her wrists too?
1: No, she's very girly. She's
2: a
0: cheerleader. (laughs) And that's part of it
1: too. She's got a very femme... Lesbian. So pretty much everyone at True Directions is gay, including the people who run it. RuPaul is hilarious as Mike. He's playing like a butch man or trying to Amazing. be a, a butch man in charge of turning all the gay boys straight. So he's like <laughs> teaching them how to like fix a car and, like, throw a football. How to do
2: the opposite of Shantae. (laughs)
1: Yeah, basically. Megan heads to True Directions reluctantly as she hasn't actually come to terms with her sexuality yet, but she ends up falling in love with Clea Duvall's character, Graham. It fits into our theme of I don't give a damn about my bad reputation because by the end of the film, Megan and Graham have been shunned by everybody at True Direction. Well, the people that run True Directions both of their families, and they don't give a fuck because they're gay and in love.
2: Can I get an amen up in the air? Amen. (laughs) No, let the music play.
1: (laughs) The set design and costuming in this movie is amazing. I don't know if you remember Sinclair, Mm. but it's really playing into stereotypes. So everything that the girls do is bright, bright pink, hot, hot pink. Everything is pink, 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 pink. They look like Barbies. And everything that the boys do is like bright blue like cobalt blue right right um and the sets and everything like it's like it's almost like you're in a dollhouse this is towards the beginning of Natasha Leon's career and it's really interesting to watch her in it because she is kind of playing this like timid prissy girly character which is not how i see her after At watching like, <laughs> right. orange is the new black and russian doll mm-hmm. but it's i mean it's a really fun f- enjoyable quirky film from the 90s Fun fact about this movie, when it was initially being released, it got an NC-17 rating. Why? Which is absurd because it, because it was dealing with Oh my with God, ages. all the gay right, talk. Right. Yeah, because there isn't, like, they took out a few more explicit things in the film, but you watch this and you're like, is this even PG? Like, it's quite, quite... Timid, wow. but it was given that rating because of the subject matter, I believe. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a, it's a really fun movie from the '90s, and you had recommended it to me a while ago, Sinclair, because mm-hmm. uh, I I believe it was when I was watching Russian Russian Doll with Natasha right. Leone. You're like, you gotta watch. But I'm a cheerleader. Mm-hmm. So yeah, But I'm a cheerleader from 1999. It is on Amazon Prime if you want to give it a watch.
2: Well, I think I will have to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so my film this week is actually one of my favorites, and it's a movie that I hadn't seen in probably ten years. It's 2004's The Motorcycle Diaries, Mm -hmm. directed by Walter Salas and written by Jose Rivera, based on Che Guevara's actual diaries that were compiled into a memoir of the same name that were first published in Cuba in 1993 and then uh, broadly in 1995. So The Motorcycle Diaries stars Gail Garcia Bernal. Swoon. Such swoon. (laughs) as che and rodrigo de la serna as his friend alberto granado and it tells the story of their most epic of all epic road trips one that spans nine months and eight thousand kilometers through all of south america and one that would become a formative experience in the life of che guevara one of the most famous revolutionaries and guerrilla leaders in modern history he is literally the embodiment of not giving a damn about his bad Mm -hmm. reputation right (laughs) So the film starts off in buenos aires in 1952 che is 23 alberto is 29 they have a beat up old motorcycle they've called la poderosa which means the mighty one which is <laughs> it is not um and together they plan to travel for just over four months which of course is not how it ends up and kind of against che's parents wishes so he's from like kind of an aristocratic family and he's it is his last term of med school and so they think the trip's foolish, like just finish your med school and go be a doctor, make the family proud. But no, off they go on this incredible journey that also makes an absolutely incredible film. As they're moving along, slowly we see Che becoming aware of his own privilege and the suffering of the people, particularly the poor and the indigenous. Hmm. We see him discovering his own moral compass and, and priorities and really like growing through the people that he meets. And Gael Garcia Bernal delivers such a stunning performance. He is so, so good in this. Mm -hmm. He has this like deep emotional intensity that you just see and feel like stirring inside of him. It's, even though there's very few scenes in the film that are like showy in in that way, but he's like vibrating. It feels like it could be explosive. Uh, It's riveting to watch. And I just like loved him in this. And he's perfectly cast because he's got these, like, warm eyes. <laughs> he's so, like, sweet and he conveys compassion so easily that you kind of fall in love with him. But he has this, like, strength. And if you're playing Che Guevara, someone who became a guerrilla war hero, you have to possess some of that, like, power charisma. Mm, yeah. Right. You know what I mean? You have to be able to convince people to listen to you and you have to have a sense of authority. And... He does, even though this takes place long before he became, he, you know, evolved into that person. Rodrigo de la Serna is also fantastic. He's the, like, jovial Sam-wise to Chase Frodo. <laughs> and he just gives this character such a lived-in quality. Like, you just believe he's this guy. And they have great chemistry together. But there's this brilliant moment at the end of the film when a close-up of Rodrigo cuts to a close-up of the actual Alberto Granado at that point 82 years old and the film has done such an amazing job of really getting you to know and love these characters that you just have such a deep emotional connection to this man it's like you start weeping when you see mm-hmm. his actual face and the lines of this 82 year old man's face it's a really like truly moving shot the cinematography is breathtaking Eric Gautier is the cinematographer he also did Into the Wild
1: mm-hmm. oh my god the entire time we were thinking about this, I was thinking about Into the Wild. Yeah. <laughs> That's so I funny. Yeah. And,
2: well, I mean, and if you can imagine that, you can, it has this, this film has the same sort of like expansive, stunning landscape shots.
1: One, because I was thinking about his character too, of like wanting to separate from his privilege. And mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. And I, I think I actually thought about doing that for this segment, but then I was like, I don't know if that really
0: fits.
2: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, that
0: would have, Into the Wild? Yeah. That would have worked. Yeah, yeah totally. Sure. Well,
2: I think there's something inherently like um, not giving a shit about your reputation in a kind of coming of age story Yeah, in some ways. It's a growth, right? Yeah. And this is definitely that. It's a buddy road trip coming of age movie. It's a movie about having the courage to really examine your beliefs and challenge your own ideas of how things are or can be. And it's genuinely inspiring. Mm -hmm. It was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay at the Oscars and it won the Oscar for Best Song for um, Al Otro Lado del Rio. The Motorcycle Diaries is a really, really wonderful film. If you want to watch something that stirs your sense of adventure and wanderlust, Mm -hmm. you just want to go on this adventure. uh,
0: That's you. That's always getting stirred in you. It always
2: does. (laughs) And so it's super powerful. But yes, amazing film.
0: Cool. I've never seen it.
2: Oh, you, you got to watch, watch it. Yeah. yeah. Sinclair?
0: Okay. Well, I actually rewatched a film that I had seen when it came out in the year 2000, but I didn't. I was pretty, I was only about 14 or 15 at the time, and I only watched it because Joaquin Phoenix was in it. And I was like, I need to watch Walk that along. again because I think I'll understand it Gladiator? better. At this point, no. Uh, I actually watched Quills. Uh, oh, from 2000 directed by Philip Kaufman starring Jeffrey Rush Kate Winslet and the love of my life oh my God Joaquin Phoenix I remember this movie I remember
1: the concept of, I've never seen it but I do remember it
0: yes I definitely understood more what was going on now that I'm older Uh... <laughs> So Quills is set in a Napoleonic-era insane asylum where an inmate, the irrepressible Marquis de Sade, fights a battle of wills against a tyrannically prudish doctor. So if you don't know who the Marquis de Sade is, here's a little brief summary. So the Marquis de Sade was a French writer in the 1700s, and he was infamous for writing very pornographic works that heavily focused on philosophy, sex, and lots and lots of violence. So he was considered a disgrace by -hmm. society, and he had the belief that he was above what was considered moral, So the term sadism or being a sadist actually comes from the name of Marquis de de Sade. Oh, cool. Yeah. So (laughs) I actually watched a few months ago. That's a fun fact, by the way. That's a fun fact. If ever there (laughs) were one, that's one. Sadism (laughs) and whatnot. (laughs) Fun fact. I actually watched a couple months ago, I mentioned to you guys, I watched a movie that I considered to be my Everest. And it's called Sallow or The 120 Days of Sodom. And it's one of the most controversial movies of all time, and it's based off the of the writings of the Marquis de Sade, a story by by him. Mm-hmm. So uh, makes sense, yeah. I uh, don't recommend anybody watch it, and if you do, may God have mercy on your soul. <laughs> 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 it's pretty fucked. So in Quills, Jeffrey Rush plays the Marquis de Sade. He's wonderful. He is such a great actor. Mm-hmm. Truly. Truly a fantastic actor. And he has this mix of charm and charisma, but with a, a sinister sparkle in his eye, but also an intellect.
3: Mm-hmm. So
0: he was actually really, really perfect for this. And he was a lot of fun to watch. Kate Winslet is in this as well. She's fantastic. And the Marquis de Sade, because of his bad reputation, and he he had a history of violence towards prostitutes, and just his writing was considered blasphemous and he was essentially incarcerated into all these different insane asylums. So a lot of his writings actually came out of while he was in these insane asylums and this movie focuses on Him writing some of his work and Kate Winslet playing a, like a laundry maid who is smuggling his writings out of the insane asylum. Okay, got it. Yeah, and that, and it's being like secretly published and given to the people and they're not quite sure how it's happening, but the public is like, like loving it. Joaquin Phoenix plays a very hot priest who (laughs) is essentially trying to, you know, quote unquote, cure the Marquis de Sade. But is also very like... Transgressions, but also... Lured into it and But lured into Kate Winslet. And Kate Winslet is this woman who is very curious about the Marquis and his writings. And uh, essentially... What happens is they try to silence the Marquis de Sade once they find out that his work is being published and they do this by taking away his quills. Mm-hmm. And really his power only lies in his ability to write mm-hmm. and express himself mm-hmm. and express his opinion. Otherwise his it's just thoughts in his head. Exactly. So as they start taking away his ability to write, he starts to go crazier and crazier and he actually starts writing his work in his own blood, on his bed sheets. anything that he can get the word out onto the film basically explores the idea that the more we're told not to read something or watch something and the more controversy that's surrounding it the more we actually want to see it and the more intrigued by it we are which is me i watched that freaking i watched sallow like why did i watch that i truly don't know yeah because you want to want to know you want to know what the fuss is about Mm -hmm. and it also just represents a repression of the time as well and I mean, he was insane, of course, but, (laughs) (laughs) but still, you know, it's, um, is it the writing that's bringing out the violence and the curiosity or is it the, the repression? Right. Really? And the Marquis says in the film, I didn't create this world of ours. I merely recorded it. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jeffrey Rush was nominated for an Oscar for playing the Marquis de Sade and I think it was really well-deserved. I really enjoyed him in this and he manages to be really despicable and still oddly profound and he really captured why this man had such a quote-unquote bad reputation. So now it's time for our In Focus segment. Each week we pick an artist and take a look at their filmography and break down the projects and moments that made them the fascinating creatives that they are today. So join us while we get carried away with film adaptations from a best-selling author whose stories have been shining on the page and the silver screen since the 70s. Some of these tales have made for a great creep show with their eerie tone, macabre settings, and psychologically tormented characters. Although he hasn't enjoyed all his work, being adapted the praise from critics and fans have given these films some real redemption allowing them to dodge the silver bullet of an author's personal attachment to his work so let's drink away our misery with a little red rum and head straight into maximum overdrive <laughs> it's time to put the film adaptations of horror royalty Stephen King in focus
2: yes Excellent. It's a little different for us this week, right? It We're is. not mm. choosing an actor performer. We're taking Stephen King, yeah. the yes. master of horror writer, and uh, looking at his work that's been adapted from from his books. Yeah, yes. and
1: and we all read a Stephen King book for this episode. We we did,
0: did. yes, we did. <laughs> did we, Edison? Hopefully, we, we did. Hopefully, we all did our homework. <laughs> I guess we'll find out. <laughs> Okay. Firstly, mm-hmm. firstly, it has to be said that I think it's like fifty plus of Stephen King stories that have have been adapted. Yeah. To film or television. I also read it was like a hundred too. So. Well, he
1: has three hundred and thirteen writing credits on IMDb. So. Right. The
2: man is prolific. Yeah. And uh, yeah. obviously, everyone, all of his books are bestsellers. Literally, all of his books are bestsellers. Yeah. And people want to adapt them. Right. So, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, Yeah. he's one of the best-selling authors of all time. He also has a net worth of $500 million. Wow. Which is insane. (laughs) So we've broken Stephen King's career down into what we consider to be his defining moments and adapted stories. And we had to come to an agreement on what we think is the movie adaptation that put his career on the map. And we actually went with Carrie from 1976, directed by Brian De Palma because this actually was his first novel and yeah. his first film adaptation. Yeah. So he didn't actually have much choice there. <laughs> right. I made it sound like there was a choice, but yeah. there and wasn't.
2: And like, what a way to come out of the gate swinging. Uh-huh.
0: Right, yeah. The cool thing about this too is he sold the film rights for $2,500. Wow. Really? Yeah. like, Trump, like He sells change.
2: them for $1 now. Like chump change. Did you know that? Yeah. 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 Oh, he, wow. he sells the rights for $1. He just has to approval over the mm. screenwriter... The lead actors and yeah.
0: Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. yeah. Sissy Spacek plays Carrie White, who is a bullied high school girl with a very religious mother who discovers she has telekinetic powers. I mean, this is a classic horror film. This is yeah. actually considered to be one of the best horror films of all time. It's so good. It
3: yeah. is so good.
0: Yeah. And it was adapted from Stephen King's novel, the same name, from 1974. Helen, how did you feel upon this rewatch? I was just enamored by sissy Spacing.
3: oh my god
1: she's so beautiful and
3: pure pure
1: but also can play the the evil and the possessed side of that character so well
2: like i thought this was an unbelievable performance Mm -hmm. so committed you see that face it's hard to believe that she's actually 25 years old here yeah she looks younger she looks 14 and in the very the openings
0: okay i gonna say the opening
2: (laughs) scene when they're going through the locker room and i was like that's a lot of vagina yeah and a lot of naked women and it gets it it ends on her and she's like yeah "Mm -hmm." in the shower it's very sensual and she's washing but you know between her legs yes and then we see the blood and i was like right like it was Mm. quite graphic
3: it was really
0: graphic and when i was watching it i i remember thinking oh god they're they're high school girls Mm -hmm. and then i i looked up to see How old Sissy's basic actually was yeah. when filming? I was like, okay, well, thank God. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that did weird me out at the beginning. I yeah, was like they're really young.
2: But there's something about the like it's that her, she's got the strawberry blonde eyelashes yeah. that almost are invisible. She just has such naivety and innocence. Mm-hmm. She can she can convey that so well. Oh, it just breaks your heart.
1: Well, and that's something I think that's so wonderful about a lot of Stephen King's work is that it can pull at your heartstrings and terrify
0: you at the same time. Yeah. He and definitely has really a soft
2: spot for the people who are bullied or outcast. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. The moment when she is covered in blood and she actually starts using her power, her body movement is so horrifying. Mm-hmm. She's so rigid and robotic mm-hmm. and scary. And it's just blood with those white eyes. And, and the, the eyes. eyes that unnerved me as much as it did when I watched it when I was younger. I thought, I think that's just like horrifying imagery. Oh, that this movie
1: <laughs> scared the shit out of me and it's not the first time I've seen it. And it typically, I find that older films don't impact me as much because I feel like there's stuff in it that I'm like, oh, that looks like it's fake or that looks like it was, you know, yeah. done a long time ago, but not this. I was like, I was so fucking scared. When her hand comes out of the ground in the end, Yeah, it scared the shit out of me.
2: It's also unnerving that final scene because all I could think of the whole time was like, kill them all kill them all burn every single person in that building i'm like cheering her on (laughs)
0: yeah um it makes you feel weird about. it makes you feel
2: weird about yourself because you're like kill them all Mm.
0: yeah
2: can we discuss her mother briefly
0: i know amazing yeah
2: can we just (laughs) yeah that wow what a a spectacular performance performance. like dialed up to what (laughs) eight thousand
0: yeah Uh, she did get an oscar nomination for best supporting actress and sissy spacek did get nominated for an oscar for best leading actress which is really cool and we should discuss whether or not stephen king liked this or not and he did he liked this one mm-hmm. he considers the movie this movie better than the book his book oh,
3: oh really ow. interesting yeah.
1: Okay, so we're going to get into the big three now. Just so everybody knows, we've discussed Stand By Me on the podcast. We've discussed it. We've discussed Shawshank Redemption. We are not going to do any of those films. We picked some other ones that we decided we would like to read the books of and Mm -hmm. watch the films. Mm -hmm. Um, So Sinclair, why don't you start us off with the first film adaptation in the big three
0: yes and this happens to be one of my favorite movies of all time and what I consider to be the scariest movie of all time and traumatized me for life and that's The Shining (laughs) from 1980 this is based on uh, Stephen King's book The Shining that was published in 1977 we all know the story this is about the Torrance family who go to live in the Overlook Hotel and Jack is the janitor and he slowly descends into madness and murder ensues Mm -hmm. and whatnot chaos ensues so the interesting thing about this is stanley kubrick did the film the shining and stephen king notoriously hated it
2: right yes
0: hated it hated it
2: which it's so interesting because you'd think that when that happened at the beginning when stephen king was like wait Oh, Kubrick is going to be doing this film. He probably yes. was so excited.
0: Well, these two just creatively are so different.
2: Oh yeah, God yeah.
0: And I had not read the book, so I've actually been reading this book for a month. Yeah, you I'd say it. it's know. like seven hundred pages. I've been reading that Hey guys, you know, still reading The Shining. Can't go out for a drink. Hey Sinclair, what's <laughs> up? What are you What are you up to? Still reading The Shining. Such yeah, you, dedication. Such dedication. You kept sending yes. us photos of where your bookmark was. <laughs> yes. This and I've read long books before, but this took me a surprisingly long time. So the book is very different okay. from from the movie. Which is probably why he didn't like it. Yes. It deviates quite far, especially the ending. Okay, I want to know and I are you gonna go into the differences? Yes. Okay. So one of the big differences is that in the book you get way more backstory Mm. into jack his past he was fired from his job for violent like a Mm. violent act he has struggled with alcoholism and they really dive into that their marriage has been on the rocks and also he has been um quite violent towards danny when drunk
2: okay this is interesting because i've always thought in the film like jack nicholson is amazing and Mm. terrifying But that character has always kind of been one dimensional for me in the film.
0: Yes. And the same with Shelley Duvall. So you actually get a lot of backstory about Wendy as well. And what, you know, why is she staying in this this relationship? You also get more insight into why Jack has taken this job. This is like a last chance job for him Mm. to kind of, you know, find some sort of um, redemption from his past and support his family in this way. And he's been fired from his last job and kind of has a quote-unquote bad reputation. (laughs) So you do get a lot of that backstory. And the other thing that is a huge difference is that you actually get more insight into what The Shining actually is. So Danny can hear his parents' thoughts A lot of the book is Danny's inner monologue, Mm, which by the way, Stephen King can't write that well because Danny's inner monologue sounds like he's a 30. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Like he's supposed to be five. (laughs) Now, one thing I hated about the book is that it is actually... The hotel is haunted to a point where it's like a fun house. Like hedges come alive they attack. Right. Like the whole inanimate is Stephen King. So inanimate objects are coming alive. And that gave me an element of things feeling quite cheesy. Okay. Right. I still... There's zero
2: cheese in the film.
0: These are two different things, but I still prefer the movie to the book.
3: Okay. And the
0: reason for that is because it's ambiguous. Hmm. So everything that Stephen King hates about not having all this context is what I actually like about the film. Mm. And it also is more about the mind being scarier than at ghosts.
2: Than the circumstances. yes. Yes. I get it.
0: And just the imagery, the music, um, everything. But when you do read the book, you realize that, um, everything the shining the hotel is it's just symbolizing alcoholism mm. and it's just and it's how it's um destructive to a family mm-hmm. and stephen king was struggling with alcoholism while mm-hmm. writing this novel mm-hmm. um one thing too about this is that is interesting was like mixed reviews when this film came out it actually was nominated for two razzie awards it was yes but this has gone on to be wow one of considered to be one of a the classic. best horror films of all time, yeah, and a classic. So I think people really started to appreciate it. later. Appreciate this film and imp- and appreciate how ambiguous this film is. There's documentaries about interpretations of this film. Mm-hmm. That's it cool. keeps you thinking about it for decades mm-hmm. and decades. Something that the book doesn't do. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, Stephen King hated it. So. <laughs>
2: all right helen what's next on the big three
0: all
1: right number two in the big three is misery the novel came out in 1987 and tells the story of famous writer paul sheldon who is pulled from his car after drunkenly crashing it by his number one fan annie wilkes annie happens to be a former nurse and is able to take care of paul following his accident she also happens to be psychotic and obsessed with paul's misery series and has no intention of ever letting him leave
3: Yes. Um,
1: The movie came out in 1990, starring James Caan and Kathy Bates, directed by Rob Reiner. Kathy Bates ended up winning an Academy Award for her performance as Annie Welks, the only Stephen King film to ever win an Oscar.
2: Oh, see, that is fascinating Mm -hmm. because I remember when I talked about Shawshank, it was nominated for a ton of Oscars, but I guess it didn't win any.
1: Yeah, I know. Yeah, there have been nominations, but this is the only win. So I did read this book. I much preferred the book to the movie Mm. and the movie is good. Oh, yeah. But the book is a lot darker and I seem to have a... Mm-hmm. I, I seem to prefer the darkness <laughs> when yeah. it comes to these adaptations. Hello, darkness,
3: my old friend. <laughs> yeah.
1: It also offers a lot more insight into Paul's internal life. And his dependence on the pain medication that Annie provides for him. And like you were saying with The Shining Sinclair, Stephen King has stated that this book is very much about his addiction addiction and dependence on drugs and alcohol. Mm, This is a common theme.
3: Oh, yeah.
2: He writes about that. Stephen King's got an amazing book called On Writing, which I Mm -hmm. may have even mentioned in the podcast before, Mm -hmm. but I read it. And it's kind of a memoir, but that is also like lessons on the craft of writing. But it's fantastic. But he talks at length about his addiction and the, the books that he's like mm-hmm. written while well that yeah. were influenced by it.
1: So this one is definitely a depiction of that. And he has said that Annie Wilkes' character to him is drugs and alcohol. Mm. It's interesting because, you know, there's that infamous scene in the film where she hobbles him, where mm-hmm. she breaks his ankles with that sledgehammer. In the book, it's a lot more gruesome. She takes an act... And chops off his foot
0: mm-hmm. and
1: then cauterizes the stump with a blowtorch.
0: Right.
2: I remember she, this.
1: She also cuts off his thumb. And she has way more moments of psychosis. Like there's a moment where she brings up a rat that she caught in a trap in her basement. And she, it's, it's been caught, but it's not dead. And she squeezes it until it dies. Mm -hmm. And then she has the blood on her fingers and then she's standing there like staring off and just starts licking the rat's blood off of her Mm -hmm. fingers. Like there's all those like really, really horrifying moments and none of that is in the film. The most horrifying thing is the sledgehammer moment and Kathy Bates' performance is wonderful But there was that part of me that was like, I want to see this Mm -hmm. crazy, horrific character that he wrote. But it is a really good movie. And but I would say if you watch the movie and you like it, read the book, because I found the book to be actually quite a bit more engaging and fascinating. Mm -hmm. I did have one thing I wanted to say, which throughout the entire film, I got these feelings of misogyny Mm
3: -hmm.
0: that
1: I really didn't like, where Paul's internal dialogue would use really, really degrading terms towards
0: Annie. So that's a that's a thing in The Shining too. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. This, there's it's always like, you bitch. Yeah. You cunt. You mm. whore. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Well, and yeah. it was
1: really bothering me and I was trying to like put it aside because I'm like, okay, she's the villain. She's the tormentor. But it was almost like it was an excuse to use these terms and have it be okay. And then I actually, I do need to read one little excerpt from yeah. the film because it, bothered me so much (laughs) okay so this is right at the end where they're battling basically he has tried to burn her alive she's still alive but like charred and he's trying he's stuffing the pages of this book that he wrote for her burning pages into her mouth and this is what he says I'm gonna rape you all right Annie I'm gonna rape you because all I can do is the worst I can do so suck my book suck my book suck on it until you fucking choke
3: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Yeah. I read that and I just, I had to shut the book for a second because I was like, I don't care what the perspective is on this. Like that makes me feel like puking. Right. Do you remember right.
2: at the end of It when they gang banged yeah. the girl?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That like, looks fucked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: All of the kid like it's, this is a recurring theme, maybe. Okay, mm-hmm. th-
1: okay, interesting because I did try to look up like misogyny and misery, and I couldn't really find anything. But I guess yeah, that, this is a common theme. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> the last thing I'll say about misery is that Stephen King did enjoy this adaptation specifically mm. Kathy Bates's performance in it. I, I believe he requested that she be in the Dolores right. Claiborne. Right. Adaptation. So he he was hesitant about getting this adapted, but one of his stipulations was that Rob Reiner either produce or direct it, and he did direct it. So mm. it was a success in his mind. Mm-hmm. All right, Edison. What is number three?
2: Okay, uh, the final film in the big three is 1999's The Green Mile, mm-hmm. written and directed by Frank Darabont, and starring Tom Hanks and Michael Clark Duncan. And it is based on the serial novel, which was originally published as six separate volumes. One released each month from March to August of 1996.
1: What? Did how you, how was you, the yeah, book? Yeah, how was it, Edison?
0: It was
2: fantastic.
0: Hmm? And you read it? Did hmm? you read it? We don't believe hmm? you that you read it. <laughs> Edison probably read the dedication. We (laughs) can actually see the book on your couch right now, and it's looking like it has not been touched. No creases. It's not a dog ear, a crease. (sighs) Okay,
2: I got to page 21. Okay, so... (laughs)
0: You could have at least like looked up the differences and
1: pretended. We slaved over our books, Edison. I brought my book <laughs> Camping.
2: I know. I've been reading
1: The Shining for a month. I had Edison. limited space in my backpack and I brought my book. It was hardcover.
2: <laughs> oh my god. Okay. I alright. I am I am sufficiently <laughs> ashamed. I I'm sorry. Okay, so have you both seen this film?
1: Yes. I have not actually.
2: You have not seen this, Helen? I know, I know. Okay, I'm um, sorry. I think that you would actually really love this. I think
1: I would too, actually.
2: This is magical realism.
1: Yeah, I love that. That's your it's thing. It's right oh, up shit. your
2: alley. It is. So for a little refresher, the Green Mile tells the story of a group of death row prison guards and their encounter with John Coffey, a black man who is a new inmate to the block and who is charged with the rape and murder of two young white girls. But he has this astonishing and unexplainable like healing and empathy, empathy power. Tom Hanks is, of course, our protagonist. Mm-hmm. He is the supervisor guard on Death Row. And Michael Clark Duncan plays John Coffey. Mm. This film has so much friggin' heart. Mm.
3: Mm-hmm. Like,
2: I don't know what it was about this trifecta of Stephen King, Frank Darabont and prison. <laughs> but if you just want to, like, cry for a full day, watch right. this as a double feature with Shawshank Redemption and you're all set.
1: No, I can't. Brooks was here. I cannot. No. <laughs> Too much no. for me. Brooks is here. here. No. Okay. No.
2: This film will s- pull at your heartstrings even more no. and it's because of Michael Clark Duncan and also that little mouse.
0: No, the mouse. That's the one. Oh, so I've only seen this movie once and I won't watch it again because the mouse scene. Oh. so sad. Yeah. I know.
2: I know. But it's really beautiful and... Like, there's so many other amazing performances in this. Sam Rockwell plays a fucking Mm. off-the-wall, like, crazy criminal. I'm not going to give any spoilers, whatever. David Morse is great. Patricia Clarkson is also great. James Cromwell. Tom Hanks is so good in this film. He just really is that guy. He's He's just goodness. He's just so solid. This came out in 1999 and like continued and kind of finished his 90s reign. Mm. He's wonderful, but Michael Clark Duncan is brilliant. He's an enormous man, mm, yeah. and the way that he's shot in this film is all like from lower angles looking up. Right. He's, he looks like he's about 300 pounds of pure solid muscle.
1: Wow,
2: he plays this character, John Coffey, with like a childlike wonder, mm. and he's got this deep, resonant voice. And he has this power to kind of heal people. And it comes out in the most uniquely Stephen King imaginative way. (laughs) It's really brilliant. And Stephen King really liked this film. Cool. Mm. He said, I would have to say that I was delighted with The Green Mile. The film is a little soft in some ways. I like to joke with Frank that his movie was really the first R-rated Hallmark Hall of Fame production. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And for a story that is set on Death Row, it has a really feel-good, praise the human condition sentiment to it. I certainly don't have a problem with that because I am a sentimentalist at heart.
3: Mm.
2: And that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, the film was a tremendous success. It made almost 300 million dollars at the box office worldwide. It was nominated for 4 Oscars, including Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Picture, and Best Supporting Actor for Michael Clark Duncan, but it didn't win any, like you were saying. Mm. Um, but yes, The Green Mile. I mean, it's amazing. It's definitely worth a revisit. And like I hadn't seen this film in like 20 years. And it's three hours long. And I enjoyed every single minute of it. Mm. It's cool. wonderful.
3: Mm.
1: It'd be nice to know how it compares to the book. But yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess we'll just have to read the
2: <laughs> oh, yes. book. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> okay, <laughs> next. <notes. laughs> All right, Sinclair. Why don't you tell us what The Hidden Gem was?
0: Okay, well... I wanted to throw it back to the 90s, and I remembered a movie that I saw in the 90s based on a Stephen King book that I actually found to be kind of creepy back in the day. And so I watched it now, and what I thought would be a hidden gem turned out to just be a Hidden Stinker. Oh, no. Uh, but hidden I pay- Stinker. The hidden Stinker. Better than a revealed stinker, yes. I guess. <laughs> um, but I, you know, spent time rewatching it, and I paid for it, so everyone's gonna hear about thinner oh my god from 1996 i
2: remember when this came out too i thought it was scary i mean i I I guess i was
3: 12
0: i thought it was scary too but it's just bad and (laughs) this is based on the novel thinner from 1984 written by stephen king the movie from 1996 is directed by tom holland
3: not
0: oh. spider-man <laughs> magic. He, wow magic he definitely was talking about magic even alive old direct in <laughs> a movie here's a little synopsis an obese attorney is cursed by a gypsy to rapidly and uncontrollably lose weight so weird yeah basically what happens is this really kind of Sleazy overweight attorney is driving home with his wife and she begins to perform oral sex on him while he's driving and then he gets distracted, obviously and hit, this is such a trope. Why is like the car or the oral sex car scene always such a trope in a movie Also, then, why yeah, are people getting distracted?
2: Like... I have never gotten
0: distracted. <laughs> 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 Thank you, Edison. <laughs> In this case, that doesn't happen. He gets distracted and he hits an old woman who happens to be a gypsy and he kills her. And basically what happens is him and his team of lawyers get him off scot-free. And so the old gypsy woman's even older father goes up to Robert John Burke, touches his cheek, Mm. and says, thinner. Terrifying. Just like that. What happens is he starts to rapidly lose weight. And interestingly enough, what we've been discussing about Stephen King putting in his stories what he's experiencing at the time in his life, he was actually feeling that he was quite overweight at the time that he wrote this novel.
2: (laughs) Write what you know, honey. Right.
0: (laughs) I also don't know why movies were obsessed with putting people in fat suits in the 90s. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This movie does not hold up at all. it's actually full of stereotypes and tropes. It's really cheesy. It's just problematic when you watch it now. Not scary. And I I, I laughed a bit, but I, I did not it did not have the same effect on me mm. at at all. So do I recommend this movie? Yeah, maybe if you're drunk and okay, want to watch I something cheesy. but I don't understand, cheesy. like,
1: what's scary about that? Like, wouldn't a if somebody was obese and the magic gypsy was like, you're going to lose weight, wouldn't that be like, cool? Well, no. it, it's
0: basically he keeps getting thinner and thinner to the point where he's going to, like, disappear. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh. Like be gone forever. Like be
0: gone. Oh, okay. Yes, That's and scary. then the only way to get, he finds out the only way to get rid of this gypsy curse is, is to put his blood in a pie which his blood will contain the curse and he has to feed the pie with the curse to another person and then they get the curse and then they get the curse oh, that's and bad. then spoiler 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 <laughs> if you don't want to know the end spoiler spoiler, <laughs> spoiler he feeds it to his wife and then his daughter also accidentally Eats the pie as well. So he learns no lesson in this. He's still a selfish prick by the end. He basically just becomes.
1: He becomes uh, worse. Actually,
0: worse. Yeah, there's really no lesson learned in thinner at all. Wow. (laughs) Anyway, hidden stinker. (laughs)
3: Hidden stinker.
0: Thinner. Nice. Okay, Edison, what is Stephen King's pop culture moment?
2: You know, I think Stephen King himself is the pop culture moment. Mm. Right. I mean, really, really think about it. How many writers are as famous as Stephen King? Yeah. Or perhaps a better question is how many have so intentionally engaged with their own public persona Mm. and fame in the way that he has? Right. Mm -hmm. He is a pop culture icon himself. Right. Which is super awesome. And it's because he pops up everywhere. If you look at his IMDb profile, he has 25 acting credits, almost all of which are in TV or film projects that he's written. Yes. <laughs> he makes little cameos here, there, and everywhere.
3: That's cool.
2: And yes. he's also been a columnist for Entertainment Weekly. He is a recurring character on The Simpsons. <laughs> he did a friggin' 80s American Express commercial. Yeah. He's super active and engaged politically on Twitter. Like yeah. Stephen King... Is a celebrity?
0: Yeah, he is. He actually became such a celebrity writer that he uh, took on a pseudonym, mm-hmm. which is exactly. which I actually didn't know until we did this segment. Rich, R- Richard Bachman. He wrote yeah. *Thinner*.
2: As Richard Bachman. So, yes, and mm. then he was
0: outed as Richard Bachman because of *Thinner*. So basically, that book didn't. It sold. A, 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 it it did sell a decent amount, but then people found out it was actually Stephen King, and it just the sales went up like hmm. tenfold yeah yeah,
2: and maybe he like rejected it for a minute he was like oh I'm being more famous than my work or whatever but yeah. he seems to have embraced it now yeah. I mean he is the master of horror mm-hmm. everyone knows Stephen King his books are super mainstream they're all best sellers so they're all very successful right we've talked about some films that have been adapted now but the list goes on and on and on mm-hmm. and then that's not even to think about the books that haven't been adapted yeah. to film So yeah, Stephen King is like his own pop culture moment. (laughs) He is his own thing. Yeah. He is as famous as any of his books at this point.
1: Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Definitely. More so, I would say.
2: Yeah. Um all right Helen what is up and coming in terms of Stephen King film adaptations
1: So he actually has 25 up and oh coming Oh my god, god. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. whether they be you know recently completed pre-production post-production filming whatever 25 So I narrowed it down to two that I found interesting and exciting um, Sleeping Beauties. It's a TV movie and the synopsis is a small Appalachian town is disturbed by a series of unexplained cocoon-like shrouds engulfing the female residents while they
2: sleep. Oh my gosh. Okay.
1: <laughs> that sounds cool,
0: doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it
1: does. Yeah. Um, so that's one that I'm excited about. There's also a series coming out called Chapelweight which is was supposed to start filming In Nova Scotia in April, but because of the pandemic, I believe it's currently starting to film now. Oh, wow. Mm. Um, Starring Adrian Brody and Emily Hampshire. Mm. Oh, go Canada. Go Canada. So here's the synopsis via IMDb. Captain Charles Boone, who relocates his family of three children to his ancestral home in the small, seemingly sleepy town of Preacher's Corners, Maine, after his wife dies at sea. That's a terrible synopsis. That's not even (laughs) grammatically correct. (laughs) so that's i that's all i really know about that but it is filming in canada and we've got our very own emily hampshire in there mm-hmm. so i'm excited mm-hmm. about that but as i said there are 25 projects on there so if there's anything else you want to know about just head over to imdb
3: because <laughs> i ain't going through all Love 25 God. Oh my
0: God. all right guys there's only one way to end this in focus segment on Stephen King, and that's to play a fun little game of marry, fuck, kill mm-hmm. Edison out of this very, very vast <laughs> filmography. So what Stephen King adaptation do you want to marry?
2: It's Stand by Me. Of of course. Course. We've of talked course. about this film approximately seven hundred times on this podcast so far. I mean, it's it is literally one of my favorites of all time, and the King adaptation that I could spend every day. For the rest of eternity, with yeah, it so this was an easy marriage for me, mm. right? Yeah, Helen,
1: I'm going to marry Shawshank because it's hopeful and there, it has a happy ending. Um, Good qualities for a marriage. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, as long as I can just omit the whole Brooks storyline because I find that incredibly sad. Yes. and the prison
0: component. Well, okay, that too. Just yeah. to on the end, just <laughs> the end, please. <laughs> the happy ending. Yeah, Sinclair. Yeah, I'm going to marry The Shining. Yeah, It's um, I, a I movie guess. that has affected me for my entire life. Mm-hmm. Uh, will I read the book again? No. Will I watch the movie again? Yes. A hundred percent. I'll watch it till the day I die. I oh, that- love that. <laughs> that, was yes. Really yes. that was really intense. I'm- yeah. It's a
2: clear what's an intense marriage.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay, Addison. What adaptation do you want to fuck?
2: Yeah, this one is hard actually because it was really hard, yeah. there's not like a ton of sex appeal, it is for so, no. what, what are we gonna fuck That's the sexy. clown from it?
0: <laughs> like, it is sexy. What? No, thank you. No.
2: Um, so I'm gonna go with the Dark Tower series. Okay. Because though I haven't seen it, Idris Elba's in it. So right, it's gonna he's be sexy. sexy. Yeah.
1: That's a fair yeah. choice.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Helen?
1: I'm gonna fuck Carrie actually. Yeah. Um, okay. Cause there is some element of sex appeal in that film. Mm-hmm.
0: I love Not from asshole John Travolta. No, no, no,
1: no. <laughs> um <laughs> I
3: awful.
0: love Sissy Spacek in it and I love witches. So Yeah, that's true. There's witchy vibes definitely. Yeah. Um okay, I'm going to fuck Gerald's game. <laughs> I almost picked that. <laughs> I almost picked Why? that. Why? There's, um, there's some S&M stuff in there. Yeah, there's some kinky shit in there. I don't there. know this film. And It's on Netflix. It's on Netflix if anybody wants to watch it. It's um, pretty much a one and done for me, though. I've seen it once and I'm done. It's yeah, and, that's it's, fair. it's a one night stand for sure. And Carla Gugino. Cugino. Jesus, my nerve. She's She's sexy and beautiful and she's tied to a bed the whole time, so... She
1: does have to basically saw off her
0: own wrist. Yeah, that right. and that part. There's some like crazy, crazy gore yeah. in Gerald's game. Yeah. Well, guys. nothing like, gets you off really quicker well than done. that. <laughs> yeah. So, whew, is it on here?
2: <laughs> is it on okay. is that just a severed arm? Wow.
0: <laughs> Edison, whoo, severed arm. You better kill. You better kill one. You better kill Basement one. Basement's flooding. <laughs> okay, Edison, you gotta kill one. What's it gonna be? Oh,
2: okay. Well, I'm gonna kill another one of Frank Darabont's adaptations here. And it is 2007's The Mist.
0: No, why? Yes, because the don't fucking ending. No. Yes. Why? Because it's bleak?
2: Yes, I hated it. I don't actually think a person would do this. I don't. I found this ending so... It was one of the most irritating, frustrating... I love that movie. Did you... And then the ending made me want to claw my eyes out.
0: Did you not see those monsters? Would you want death by those... Monsters, those mm-hmm. cosmic monsters. Would
2: you literally shoot your children in the head? If, or, if, no, if, I would cling think, on to hope until think the last minute.
0: The freaking universe is being ripped open, and these creatures have come through. Would you want death by those creatures or death by your own hand? I is would, Essentially, what that movie. Said. Yeah, and
2: it's horseshit. I would wait, and I'd I would wait until the creatures were on my car, until. That it was happening. Did you see
0: that that one death, the woman with the sting? Do you want that?
2: I'm telling you, I hated it so much. I It killed me, the ending. I thought it was garbage.
0: I think face-to-face with those cosmic horror creatures, you would change your mind.
2: No, I absolutely would not. <laughs> well. Nothing. I'm sorry, but I will never watch this film again, and neither will you, because it's dead. Helen, okay, what would well, you we'll kill? well, let's see
0: what
1: you do in the cosmic
0: apocalypse. We'll see.
1: <laughs> well... I'm killing a film that you were both supposed to watch. Okay. And you didn't. <laughs> what? I didn't okay. watch suddenly it? S- no. Suddenly
2: Helen's very articulate Wait, again.
1: I didn't watch it? No, you didn't. What? Well, did you? No, you didn't. What? In the Tall Grass. Oh, no. But you, why would we watch it though? Because you because hated I it Because I had so to much. suffer and you were supposed to suffer with me. No. We were all supposed to watch In the Tall Grass on Netflix. I was the only one that watched it and they decided they didn't want to do it for the podcast anymore. So they didn't have to watch it. It's really bad. Yeah, you had to watch it. <laughs> Sorry. It's really bad.
0: Well, we're not going to watch it. Yeah, I know. You did not get well, it Well, you can't because I
1: killed it.
2: Wow. Okay, so we're all drunk. Sinclair, <laughs> Um. what film are you going to kill? We I'm, need to wrap this up. We
0: need to wrap this up. I'm going to kill App Pupil. Why? Because there is a cat scene in this movie that has scarred me for a really long time. Okay,
2: well that's fair, but this is a really good movie. There's a cat. Brad Renfro was great in this.
0: There's a cat in an oven, and that's all Ew. I'm not gonna say. And it yeah. really has haunted me for a long well, time. Well,
2: that's fair. It's a. It is. This is a fucked up movie. It's but it, pretty but it's fucked. Good.
0: It's good, but I can never get that scene out of my head. So. And Killing yet it. you
2: watch Solo.
0: <laughs> unless uh, yeah I watch Zalo <laughs> but a cat a cat no. no don't do that shit to a cat okay. I don't
1: <laughs> well this has been another episode of talk movie to me if you'd like to get in touch with us our email is me at gmail.com follow us on instagram at talkmovietome tweet at us at podcast. rate and review us on itunes and check out our website talkmovietomepodcast.com I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair
2: I'm Edison I think uh,
3: <laughs> thanks this was a
1: lot this is a lot
3: Oh, <laughs>